Tom Wallace, and I'm one of the partners here at Florida Funders, and welcome to Florida Funders podcast. At Florida Funders, we're all about really two things, investors and entrepreneurs. The purpose of our podcast is really all about learning. I think the one thing that all entrepreneurs and investors like is we always there's always something new, something dynamic, somebody we can learn from to make us better investors, to make us better entrepreneurs. And that's what this podcast is all about. So some of our past guests have included Alex Ohanian, founder of Reddit, Peter Maluth, the number one financial advisor in the country, according to the Wall Street Journal, Chris Sullivan, the founder of Outback Steakhouse, Jeff Binnick, who owns the local hockey team here, and Steve Raymond, the founder of Tech Data. Today, we have the opportunity to learn from Ruben Pressman, who's a, a local entrepreneur and has a great story to tell us. And uh, uh, we'll get started with Ruben here in a second. Before we do that, I just wanted to mention to everybody a little bit about Florida Funders. In case you're not familiar with us, we're a hybrid between a venture capital fund or funds now. We're on our third fund and an angel network of investors. And we're on a mission to find, fund, and help build the next generation of great technology companies here in the state of Florida and beyond. So we like to say we're on a mission to change Florida from sunshine state to startup state. And I know that's near and dear to Ruben. So Ruben, welcome. Thanks for coming on on the pod. And uh, why don't we start by tell us a little bit about you and your background. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Grew up here in Tampa Bay, have spent 14, 15 years now in in St. Petersburg, building a range of ventures, going to school, um, working with the city and ultimately building and uh, growing and now selling presents. Yeah. And Ruben and I met, I think it was 10 years ago. I'm not very good with date. Eight years ago? Yeah. So uh, I was a student at USF St. Pete at the time, my final year, and actually pitched a concept of presence during a, uh, a pitch competition. Yeah, I was one of the judges. Yeah. I was. I remember that specifically for two reasons. One, one of the other judges was Kevin Harrigan, who yeah. was one of the original Shark Tank judges, yeah. who uh, I had never met before. He only lasted the first season. He did, yeah. And I think I know why after being in a pitch competition with him, but <laughs> really good guy. And I don't mean Kevin, please don't take that personally. If you see this. <laughs> and then the second thing I remember was USF St. Pete, and it was all students, yep, pr- pretty much pitching. And you know, frankly, a lot of the a lot of them were just business ideas and really half baked. And you really stood out. I mean, uh, you won the pitch competition, as I'm sure you recall. And uh, it was an easy decision by the judges. <laughs> I've been on ones where I'm judging. I've done many pitch competition judges, everything, judgings over the year. And a lot of times they're difficult. Yours was not difficult. Thank you. We did you know, like $5,000 or something. It was, yeah, I think it was a few thousand bucks or something that the school had. At hand. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about presence and that journey that started, you know, back then. I always kind of start back early, early days. I started programming when I was 10. So I've always had a really big technology background. I've enjoyed problem solving, which has been just a compulsive habit of mine over the years using technology. And so everything really came together when I was a student at USF St. Pete and found a lot of the pain points that I experienced myself and saw others getting involved outside of the classroom. We saw the same 5 to 10% of students getting involved. And that was really where most of the learning was happening. I learned way more getting involved in experiential learning opportunities than I did sitting in lectures in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And that was not unique to USF St. Pete. That's a nationwide thing that we were finding. Kind of had the initial idea that we could understand the data better, we could reach more students and get them involved. Fast forward, I worked in enrollment marketing services and student affairs on the professional side, getting deeper into the key metrics that institutions care about, things like retention and graduation rates and uh, student success and found the main factors that play a role now, your academics, your financial stability, your uh, mental health, and then student involvement. Student involvement was kind of that 
dark hole of data that was missing that institutions lacked to better understand how to get students involved. Yeah. I remember the, the whole student activity fee thing, because I remember yeah, exactly. that from when I was yeah. in college, like every year on my tuition, I get this student activity fee. And I'm yeah. like, what the hell is that? Where's that going? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's millions of dollars that are allocated to those out-of-classroom experiences. It's a major factor in whether students are, are graduating and being successful with that. And so we said if we could make it easy to collect that data and understand it, we could give the tools institutions needed to make an impact. And so we've done that and we grew it to nearly 300 universities and colleges. What year did you start? So we launched it in May of 2014. We started working on it a little bit before then, but uh, essentially we got it launched live mid-2014. And there was a gap there with us because I remember the pitch competition and I didn't see it for like two years. And I think uh, you were I filming mean, it or maybe. Yeah, I graduated in 2011 and kind of shelved the idea. Uh, I just didn't feel like it was the right timing for it. And that's when I started working a little bit more professionally in the space and just started seeing more and more reasons and like pain points that I continue to go back and say, that's going to address that. So I pulled it off the shelf, found some people to help me get it started, and uh, yeah, we did. And Who was your first customer, and how, how did you get the first university? Well, we're not with us anymore, which is sad, but it was St. Leo University, just not too far from yeah, here. But, sure. um, right up the road. Yeah, and actually our main contact that bought it when we were first there ended up working for us for about a year as, uh, as well after she left. But we were up at University of Florida trying to pitch them and had some meetings, and on the way down, it was at the time where that first year, we were just driving around the state just stopping in people's offices to get in front of them as much as possible. And we would actually dress up like students and wear a backpack and <laughs> come on campus and be like, oh, I need some help. And they're like, oh, come sit down. And we're like, actually, I got to show you something. Like and <laughs> so we walked into St. Leo at the end of the day at 445 on a Friday. And if anyone's in higher ed, nobody even does anything at 445 on a Friday. They're usually gone. They were locking their doors and leaving. And we're like, hey, we really want to show you something. They sat down. They're like, hey, we're actually buying your competitor next week, but we'll take a look at this. They looked at it and they're like, screw that. We're going to buy this. Brought us back the next week to sell it to the larger team. And that was it. <laughs> I love the tenacity. Yeah. So when I think of selling to universities, I think of, I want to kill myself. <laughs> Nonprofits are worse, but universities are pretty bad. I mean, these, for those of you who have never done this, and I have done it, they have trouble making decisions. They move really slow. They're bureaucratic. The, the budget, you know, yada, yada. So how did you get around that? I mean, that... That had to be a painful process at times. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely like, you know, you talk about hockey stick charts. It was like this. And then all of a sudden, like once you get past that kind of critical point, it gets a whole lot easier. Nobody in higher ed wants to be a first mover. And luckily, St. Leo prides themselves on kind of being on the edge. And so that was, I think, why they joined on. But yeah. Yeah, one of the things about St. Leo, uh, sorry to interrupt you, that, that I remember is they were one of the first colleges in the country to really embrace online learning. Sure. And actually, I think their online learning students and revenues fairly quickly exceeded what they were doing because it's a pretty small university up there. And uh, yeah, it's a fairly modest campus, but they have, I think, about 20 centers around the country. And so I think that distribution allowed them to be really successful with that. But yeah, I mean, so uh, IT is very difficult, especially when you're looking at just a couple of kids are out of college trying to store sensitive data about students. And so mm-hmm. that was definitely a bottleneck. And then unique to us, higher ed is absolutely difficult to sell to, and for good reason, I think. But we were selling to student affairs, and we were often selling to a, a, a space uh, on the institution that didn't have software for what we were doing. And this may have been their first time purchasing software at a university. So you weren't replacing an existing solution. So, you were really coming in with a new solution. So, it was so all we were coming in with a kind of rethought solution to that space. Some institutions had kind of management tools, we came and said, we have a data and engagement tool. We do that stuff, but here's what we have. 
even now, only 20%, 25% of institutions in the country use a software like ours or similar in that space. So not only are, was higher ed tough to sell to, but our champions may have never bought software at the institution in the first place. So was there, was there a tipping point where one day or one customer you landed, you said, we really got something here and, and this can really scale and grow. And I mean, yeah, there's been a few times. I mean, you know, kind of building companies, right? When St. Leo bought, we're like, okay, it's working. <laughs> Someone's interested in this. They're going to usually when I got the first customer, it was like, oh shit, now I got to deliver. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so we were good. We had already kind of got to a really solid MVP. Like we, we knew it was working. We had beta tested it with other institutions and, and St. Leo was just the first one to commit. And so it was that initial validation that someone, they, yeah. I think they paid us $3,000 the first year, right? And I mean, now it's like our average is 20 something, right? So th- that was definitely the first trigger or kind of like uh, uh, inflection point. And then we closed, I think, 14 schools our first year. And so like once we started, once we passed 10 or so, it started getting a little easier. Like IT was like, oh, okay, you have some people that have looked at this. Yeah. Like, yeah, everyone else has already vetted it. You don't need to do that. And that was a good inflection. Then once we hit, I think, 2030, we started to feel like, all right. And I think that's around when we went to go raise our next round of funding and everything as well, as we felt like we had a really stable ground, uh, bought in customers that were referring people and starting that, that engine. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the fundraising. Sure. I think other founders always struggle with that. It's always a challenge for sure. startups. How did you go about fundraising? And tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, I mean, luckily, I built what I would consider a pretty substantial network locally here through just getting involved both at, at the institution and then eventually the city and a lot of nonprofits and, and everything. And um, I was a little bit luckier, but it was still very difficult to raise funding here. I mean, I was mentioning earlier, like Florida Funders was definitely one of our first investors in. And that was at a time where almost nobody was raising funding. We were one of the first few companies locally to just start from scratch. And you were one of our first investments. We right. were just getting started with Florida right. Funders. Yep. Yeah, I mean, we raised, I think it was just 100K the first, the very first round from a couple local uh, investors. If you remember um, Gazelle Lab, that was being run by... Um, yeah, I was an investor in Gazelle Lab. There you go. So one of the investors there uh, was our first investor and continued to invest in all of our subsequent rounds. And now I'm connected with him and he's sending me other deals that he's into and everything as well. So he was definitely a major foundation for us. And then you all came in in the kind of the second round that we had raised that was a lot larger. But yeah, it was mostly personal connections where possible, which now is a lot easier for people um, because there's a lot more people looking to invest in companies. And then eventually it just continued to grow. And so we were, if I had done it a year or two sooner, I don't know if we would have been able to raise the money we needed, right? I think we we hit it at just the early inflection point of opportunities for investment here. Yeah, one of the things that, you know, and I I deal with uh, founders every day is we always tell founders here is if you think raising money is a full-time job, you're right. If you think running a company is a full-time job, you're right. Your job is to figure out how to do both at the same time. You seem to have done pretty well with that. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely a balance. It's not easy at all. And it's definitely not for everybody. And likewise, like not everybody needs funding. Um, and you all know that. You see companies every day where one of the first questions is, how are you going to spend the money? What do you actually need it for? Are we actually going to help you get where you need to go? And so that's the first thing you have to ask yourself is, is what the value is. But it's definitely a balance. I'm trying to think. Yeah. Most of the companies that come to us need funding. That's what they're looking for. Sure. And what, but we do ask, how are you going to use this? Yeah. And what I think the question that a lot of entrepreneurs face and founders face is, do I take funding now and really put, put the pedal to the metal and try to grow as fast and scale as fast as I can? Or do I go slower 
and wait to take the money. So I build more and my dilutions last. And sure. so that's kind of a conundrum yeah. that a lot of founders face. Yep. I think the other thing is there's there's a lot of people out there that say they invest in companies and they'll waste your time when you're fundraising. Obviously, foreign funders isn't one of those. And so being able to distinguish where to spend your time and who to Good work point. with, I think yeah. is is absolutely key. I mean, you could you could take 50 meetings and one be with an actual qualified investor that's going to make sense for you. And that's where you start to lose track of being able to run the business and balance that. Yeah, yeah. Switching subjects a little bit, you pretty early on as a founder and entrepreneur in St. Petersburg, Florida, which if those of you who haven't been to St. Pete, Florida, it is a gem of a city. It's just so cool and it's come so far in the last decade. It's amazing. But you pretty early on got involved in the tech community and yep. building the tech community in St. Pete. I believe you're the entrepreneur in residence or were yep. for the city of St. Pete. Yep. Tell us about that. Yeah. So and I mean, where did you find time to do that while you're build, building a business? Too? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So I, I, I grew up in the local Tampa Bay area. So I felt like all the opportunities I've had come from the people in the area and everything that's here. And so I've always been someone that likes to be involved and help others and, and, and be there. I mean, that comes back to that problem solving habit I have. And so a lot of the struggles that I went through building my company, I was very focused on wanting to not have those persist for the next people that were coming along and other friends and colleagues that were doing the same thing I was at the time. And so, yeah, I mean, I built a lot of networking connections with that. I mean, Tampa Bay Wave was just getting started as well. So I was involved with, with them. And eventually, a lot of the work I was doing was recognized by the city. And so the entrepreneur residence was more of a formality that kind of covered a few areas that I was doing with the city. I mean, I would travel with them to conferences and other startup communities to recruit companies to move to St. Pete to help grow that space that way, not just organically. Um, and then I also used the network I had of founders and entrepreneurs and the channels that I built around that to provide more advocacy for them, what the city can help them do and everything from real estate to attracting investors to marketing the area and all of that. And so, yeah, St. Pete's just so bought into that community and it's been awesome to build a company there and also be involved in helping others do that. Yeah, and the innovation center that they're building in downtown St. Pete is going to be incredible that Tanya Elmore runs. And, and uh, I, was, I was looking at the plans for that recently. That's going to be 40,000 square feet. Yeah. Really. I mean, it's just going to be a, such a significant anchor and kind of center point to all of that space. I think I have mixed feelings about it, right? Because the reality is companies are going to be successful no matter what. Good founders are going to build great companies and the community is already there. This is a building but it really is going to center and anchor that space to provide a little bit more of a home to it. So along your journey, you learned a lot of lessons. Mm -hmm. Our listeners, a lot of them are founders and, and they like to hear your lessons learned. What are the you know big couple, one or two takeaways that you would pass on to other founders as to advice you would give them or advice you would give to, to Ruben Pressman eight years ago or nine years ago whenever you were starting this thing? Yeah, I think it's really hard to to keep sight of why you got started in the first place and what you're doing this for and who you're doing it with. And I think those are the most important parts of it. Like you have to keep that passion. You have to keep that drive. You have to care about the people that are doing it with you when you're just, you know, solving problems all day and, and dealing with big things and driving that. And as you add team and you're, you're getting further and further away from the ground, it, it's very easy to lose sight of that. And I think that same passion and interest that you had in starting it is what, is going to enable you. And I tried as much as I could to hold on to that the entire way. And I feel like I, I was successful with that, but that's the advice for sure is, is hold on to that passion because it makes a difference. I think one of the things that I tell founders all the time is building a business from scratch. It's yeah. really hard work yeah. and you're going to get punched in the face. You're going to get knocked down. And a lot of 
your ability to succeed is going to be how quickly you get back up, how, how big, quickly you fight and keep persevering. And if you have the passion and you love what you're doing, yeah. that'll drive you. That, I, I think that that makes perfect sense. That, that's yeah. what helps get you through those, those tough days. And yeah. there will be tough days. In a oh, yeah. We all know that. Yeah. I was always excited as we had consistent tough days. I would tell some of my original team because it meant a good day was coming, <laughs> right? Because it's a real roller coaster. And so it's like, you know, it got me through the tough days is knowing that, well, we're due for a good day at some point here and it's going to be great. And then opposite, I always get nervous when two, when things were happening too well, uh-huh. because I was like, well, we're due for something to go wrong here. <laughs> and so I'd actually get more anxious when things were going well, because it just, I just didn't believe it was going to stay consistent because it's just not possible. Yeah. Well, the analogy of a roller coaster ride and life of an entrepreneur is yep. it truly is. Yep. Uh, other other advice, any other piece of advice you would pass um, along? I mean, I think empathy is huge. I think, you know, it, it's, again, easy to get lost in just building the business, driving results. And I think your team is what gets you there and is the most important that's there. And so understanding what they're going through, bringing them along, instilling the passion with them. I mean, that was... It's, it's connected the passion. The number one question I would ask is, why are you here when we were interviewing people? And I wanted to hear that they wanted to be a part of what we were doing, right? Mm-hmm. And so our team, I always said a lot of our team was there because they wanted to work on a great project, not because it was a job. And it's very true. I mean, we talked to a lot of our team like, look, I'm not here for the money. Like, that's nice, of course, but I love what we're doing. And I think it's also easy because we were in education. We were in impact industry and, and it was an important thing to do. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we always say is uh, business is a team sport and the success of our founders is going to have a lot to do with the people they surround themselves with and their ability to to share the vision and attract really talented, hardworking people that certainly are going to buy into the vision yep. and help you build it. Yep. Now that's exciting. So you're in this nine years or whatever it was. Again, I'm not so great with the, the dates and time. What made you get to the point where you said, hey, maybe it's time to sell or I'm thinking about exiting and yeah. help us understand understand that. So it was about seven years from launch, uh, probably about eight or so years from when we got started. And I think we got to a point, we actually started having conversations last year uh, with some pretty large companies in the space right before COVID broke out. And that kind of paused a lot of stuff for everybody. And then we picked those back up and more this year. And it was a combination of we were going out to raise our Series A round, and we were we were actually looking for about just just five million to to go because our our you know we were set up pretty well. We were about to break even and everything, which was a great milestone to be at. So we had two. I mean, I was I was fundraising. I was talking to everybody, everything about anything. And so when you do that, as you know, obviously other people get in, in, yeah, interested for other reasons. And so most of the companies that. Or, or firms that were interested in, in buying us outright came because we were talking to them about just investing and they had more interest in that. And so we were balancing kind of, well, let's just kind of talk about both paths. If the deal is good enough, then we'll do that now and, and move on. And especially if we can, which this one was, we could roll into it. it would, we could continue getting the benefit and the upside while de-risking a little bit, of course, especially with the pandemic going on. And so we actually turned down two offers for $5 million and decided to go with Modern Campus the five million was investing. No, we did. We turned down two separate five million dollar Series A investment offers, okay. and went with Modern Campus, which is who we're with. And uh, essentially, we were they bought us and another company within the same two weeks, a company in, in Lakeland, and we were the third and fourth company to join Riverside Private Equities kind of platform play. So they're they're uh, kind of looking at adjacent companies in the higher ed space to kind of cover the student life cycle, and we kind of fit what they were looking for, and you know it made the right offer and. Part of that was we were able to roll. We didn't have to take an all-cash deal. We could buy into that. We could take roles at that new company. We could continue to grow with them and, and see the upside and 
we felt like it made us a stronger company to have those relationships and people to learn from. And they're investing in adding resources into presence and we're building integrations between the other tools. And so, yeah, it just looked like the right opportunity for us. And where's Modern? Where are they headquartered? So, yeah, Modern Campus technically is four offices because that's the kind of the companies they built. So the original company they bought was in Toronto. The next company was in Camarillo, just outside of LA. And now they have St. Pete and Lakeland. So we essentially have four offices for Modern Campus. There's no center headquarters or anything like that. The executives are all over the country. Um, and in fact, we just announced yesterday, I'm taking the chief product officer role at Modern Campus. So as I transition from CEO of Presence, I'll be kind of owning the product portfolio of the whole new venture. And how old are you now? 32. 32. So I've seen this movie a lot. <laughs> I've lived this movie. I sold my first company when I just turned 30. My experience is that entrepreneurs typically don't last that long inside of big companies or bigger companies. That's what I hear. So obviously, I'm not going to put you on the spot about how long you stay, but... What's next for Ruben after after, yeah. after this? Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm super bought into to modern campus. I don't see myself going anywhere any anytime soon. We just had our, our first kid as well. Yes, so a little bit of stability, a lane to stay in sounds really nice for the time being, for sure. So uh, I'll be there. I definitely want to get into some, some startup investments. Like I've brought investors and companies together. I've always said, you know, since day one, that I wanted to participate with a fund and be able to do that. And so I see myself doing that. And I mean, well, by the way, and I, I think that's one of the great things about tech entrepreneurship is almost all tech entrepreneurs end up being angel investors yeah. at some point. And I think it, it really, my personal belief is that is born out of our understanding of how tough the journey is. Definitely. And helping, <laughs> and we got help along the way, and we want to help the next yeah. entrepreneurs and pass it along. And I yeah, think it's, that, it's definitely more about trying to help other people than it is me making more money. That's yeah. for sure. <laughs> so if you do it right, you can make money at it. Sure. And that's one of the things we do a lot of these podcasts yeah. and have angel investors on to talk about. You know, yeah, it's definitely a bonus. Yeah, yeah, but I think it's, that, yeah, the priority is like, I want to see more companies grow here. I knew what I, I know what it was like to do this. I want to make it easier. And then two, yeah, if it works out, great. But yeah, and then uh, I told you about my compulsive problem solving habit. And so I don't think I'll stay away from building something else at some point. I definitely get more involved in the community. I'm joining some new nonprofit boards as well. And great. Yeah, just taking it deeper. Well, one I read an article recently. I think it was in the Wall Street Journal. Don't quote me on that. But it was about a study was done of unicorns. It makes me think of, of you as we sit here and talk and that the founders of unicorns, typically like 80% of them, it was not their first company they started. Right. And they had built a company previously and had had success because a lot of times people, and I believe you learn a lot more from failure than you do from oh, success, yeah. but they had typically been successful. They weren't necessarily wildly successful, but they had had some success. It made me think of Elon Musk because... yeah. You know, I don't know how many people know Musk's background, but he sold his first company. He and his brother started the Compact Computer, which I did a lot of business with back in my day. They sold it for like $28 million. It wasn't a huge, sure. huge win. And even the exit on PayPal was not huge for Musk, I think he made. There's a lot of people that were split between all that. Yeah, I mean, Peter Thiel only made like $20 million on that deal. People, That's not where he made his billions. He made it by writing Zuckerberg, a $500,000 check. But but even even Musk, I mean, so he had had a couple successes and, yep. and then the rest is kind of history there. So yep. um, I, we definitely want to invest in your next deal. Yes. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> it's for the funders. So I thought I'd switch gears. We have a little bit of time left. Like you said, you're a tech guy. You wrote code from a very young age. We're at this cusp of all these new technologies coming on stream from blockchain to augmented virtual reality to artificial intelligence. 
5G, quantum computing, autonomous vehicles. I mean, what do you see as you look out and where do you see the opportunities for both founders and investors in this unprecedented space of all these technologies hitting us at once? I'd be interested in your perspective on that. Yeah, I feel like I'd take kind of a... 90 degree perspective on it. I, I don't necessarily ever look at those type unless you're building one of those technologies or, or creating a new type of technology. I don't look at that being a foundation that actually solves the problem. I think you still have to have a steady solution and you can apply one of those technologies. I don't think the fact that we have new technologies mm-hmm. makes a difference in, in how things are done, right? Like, you know, 20 years ago, those technologies that were there were looked at the same way they are now. And that's not what made or break companies being successful. It's still having a clear problem, having a good solution to that. To me, those are just the tools that you use to make that happen. So mm-hmm. even if so you find like, a big problem, you would tell entrepreneurs, find a big problem, maybe a problem you have, yeah. and then come up with a solution. Same. If you use AI to do yeah. it, if you use blockchain to do it, what that, yes, exactly. I mean think build a company the way you've always but we've always built companies, right? And that's and use those to make it work basically. And so, you know, even getting into investing, like I don't plan to go say, all right, I'm going to go invest in AI. Like I'm going to say, all right, show me problems in a space that are important. And if you happen to use AI and you have a good use for that, great. Starting with the technology and saying, well, I want to do something in AI and going and finding something that you can apply AI to, to me, I mean, you could be successful there, but it's 10 times harder to go backwards. Well, as an investor, I'll speak to an investor, and one and the reason almost every company we invest in is really a lot based on the founder. I mean, sure. we really look at the the jockey. I mean, the, the horse is important. The problem they're solving, as you mentioned, yep. the one thing we've learned is that many of these companies will pivot, and so the problem they start out solving might not necessarily be the problem they end up solving. So we really, especially the earlier we invest in, if it's a pre-revenue deal or really early, we're really looking at the founder. Yep. And I will say that thinking back on the pitch competition and, and meeting you for the first time, the one thing that struck me was that you had the tenacity, the drive, the chutzpah, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> the perseverance to be successful. I'd like to call it the Rudy factor. If you know the movie Rudy, I look for Rudy's people that are just failure is not an option. They're going to figure it out. They're yep. going gonna to be successful, hell or high water. So I saw that in you. I still see that in you. Congratulations on your exit. Congratulations on the birth of your new child. Thanks for coming on our podcast. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate it. And we'll be looking forward to bigger things from Ruben in the future, I'm sure. Sure. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate right. being here. And wrapping up, if any of you want to touch base with Ruben and reach out to him, how would they do that? LinkedIn's probably the best spot to do that. Keeps it organized for me. Okay. Reach out to Ruben on LinkedIn. And if, if you're interested in learning more about Florida Funders, uh, you can go to floridafunders.com, which is our portal. And pretty much everything we do is out there. All the companies that we're putting up for investment, we put on our portal. And if you want to reach me, I'm Tom at floridafunders.com. Thank you so much for joining us. And thanks for listening.